Again, welcome to Freedom and to those of you who are joining us online. We are so glad to have you be a part of Freedom Online, whether you're catching this live or maybe later in the week. Uh, we will uh, ask our kids who normally exit at this time to stay in with us because it is the last Sunday of the month, so we worship together, so just stay right here with us. We are, believe it or not, we are going to wrap up the 23rd Psalm today. It only took us 11 weeks to make it through six verses. <laughs> we have taken our time, but it is good, good, rich stuff. And as we uh, look at the final verse of this most famous and most beloved chapter of the Old Testament, uh, I want to begin just with a simple question for you, and that is, do you ever struggle with fear about the future? It gets at us all at some level, doesn't it? When we think about whether it be our finances and concern for what happens if the stock market tanks and the economy crashes, or we think about relationships or loved ones and think, what what if something happened to my marriage or to my spouse, or what if something terrible happened to my kids, or what what will I do if I were to have a major accident or a health crisis, or you know, we just like you needed me to add to your list of things to worry about. But we've just we've all got those things that for us are just worrisome, that are just unknowns, because there's so much about the future that is unknown. But I want to share with you a very simple message today, as you'll see in your outline, if you want to go ahead and pull that out now. But it's just it's a very simple, straightforward message taken from this one wonderful verse of Scripture that turns us toward the future and gives us a great cause for confidence and hope as we're going to take a final look at the 23rd Psalm. Now, I will tell you this, that if you were to to dive into the commentaries and read what scholars have said about the 23rd Psalm, they will typically say to you, you know, this is a psalm that is all about David's devotion to God, David's commitment to God, David's declaration of his faith in God. And all that sounds really good, but it's really all wrong because that's not what this psalm is about. This psalm isn't about David. This psalm isn't about shepherds. It's not about sheep. This psalm is very clearly about one thing. It is about the goodness of God from start to finish. It begins and finishes with the Lord and His goodness. And, you know, we in church, and particularly we as pastors, we love to talk to you about how you need to be committed to Jesus. And you better commit your everything to Him. And while that's all very true and it's well and good... I love how this psalm just turns that 180 degrees, turns it on its ear, and it doesn't speak about how we need to be committed to God. It speaks of how God is committed to us. That is just mind-blowing good news to find out He loves us this much, and He is this committed to us. And so before we turn our attention to the final verse, I want to just slowly read through the entire psalm again and i just want you to hear of god's love for you and his commitment to you in each line the lord is my shepherd i have what i need he lets me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he renews my life he leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. 
my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Somebody say amen. Oh my goodness. You you hear a dozen lines of good news in that. Every one of them. God just speaking blessing over us. And as we get to the conclusion, he doesn't wind down. He builds to a crescendo. And he concludes with this wonderful forward-looking thought. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Everything that David has been describing has been about how God is taking care of us and pouring out what we need in the present tense. But now David turns his attention toward the future and what he can expect. And everything he has to say is good news. God's goodness and God's mercy are going to follow me and surround me every day for the rest of my life. And when that is all said and done, I'm going to be in the Lord's house forever and ever. Amen. So when we start to worry about the future, I hope you'll come back to this verse and the truths that we're going to consider today. Three things that David gives us to hang our head on about the future, that give us hope and encouragement so that we can face the future without fear. Three things that I'll point out to you. And the first one is simply that God's goodness is watching over me so I don't have to be afraid about the future. God's goodness is watching over me. He says, surely goodness shall follow me all the days of my life. Did you realize that because of his goodness... Because of his absolute commitment as a father and what a good, good father he is, he pays attention to everything about you. I mean, the the song that the team just led us in there at the very end was just a perfect lead-in to what we're looking at right now. God knows your name, but that's just a representation of such a, a deeper reality. He doesn't just know your name. He knows everything about you. And he doesn't just know how many hairs are on your head. He knows everything that you've ever been through. He knows every time you've ever had a headache. He knows every time you've ever had indigestion. He knows every time that your heart's ever been broken. He knows every time that you've struggled and felt alone, been discouraged or depressed. He not only has registered that, he felt it with you. That's a level of knowledge that's just so hard for us to take in. That God could be so personally tuned in to us. Now, I know that raises questions for us, doesn't it? I mean, at the very least, don't don't you want to ask in response to that, how can there be seven and three quarters billion people on the planet today and God's that interested in me? I mean, come on, tell the truth. Don't you wrestle with that? How can he be that dialed in to me if he's got seven and three quarters billion other people to take care of? And the best I can say in response to that is the question itself simply declares how little we understand about God. Which is pretty universal. I'm not talking down to you. I'm saying how little we understand about God. Because we, particularly we as men, I mean... 
Women, y'all have got some kind of gigantic advantage over us. You know, the old thing, men's brains are like waffles and women are like spaghetti because we, men, we just got all these little compartments like a waffle. We're just in our compartment and we're thinking about one thing. So like, ladies, the good news for you is when we're in your compartment, we're all about you. The bad news is when you walk out the door, we ain't thinking about you. We're, we're thinking about work. We're thinking about something else. Men cannot conceive of God thinking about two people at once, much less seven and three quarters billion people at once. Women, your brain are like spaghetti you're thinking about half the planet all the time anyway so y'all are never turned off we're never sure what you're thinking about but you're thinking about a lot at one time it is the truth goodness gracious it's why y'all can't rest y'all just can't turn it off we can we go in our dub box and everything's turned off there god doesn't have a dub box and god's brain is not a waffle he is the ultimate plate of spaghetti that he's just He's got a strand for everybody, and he can be fully dialed into your life and mine and everybody else. And yet he has this incredible capacity to be so attuned to us that it's like there isn't anybody else on the planet. I don't know how he does it, but it's so good to know that he does because he's not just aware. Because of his goodness, he's involved and he's taking care. David says in Psalm 145, 20, the Lord watches over all who love him. And, and the really good news in that is it doesn't just mean he's looking. It's that, that expression of watching over that means he's taking care of. He is protecting all the time. So the goodness of God for every day, for every moment of the rest of your life is going to protect you. Man, that is good news right there. To know that there are go- there already have been, if you belong to God, there have been so many countless, not, not hundreds, but thousands of times in your life where the goodness of God, the watch care of God protected you from something and you never had any clue about it. He, he shielded you from harm that would have come your way, whether it was sickness or, or cruelty or whatever. God kept you from that accident. God kept you from things that you you had no idea was coming your way. And God just said, no, I see that coming and I love them too much. I'm not going to let that happen today. They don't need that this week. And he just kept it from coming your way because he's so good and he loves you so much. Now, it really does beg just a practical question. How does he do that? I mean, how does he keep those bad things from happening and i mean we could spend a long time we could probably spend a series on that and i'm not going to do that but i do want to take just a couple of minutes to unpack that thought how does god and his goodness actually protect your life there's a lot of ways that he does it but i'm going to mention two of them to you and the first may not be what you expected to hear me talk about this morning but the first is that god will in many instances he will use angels to set a guard around you and to protect you and to intercept whatever would have happened to you so that it doesn't happen and to bring good into your life. Now, there's a lot of goofy ideas out there about angels that are not biblical at all. And my goodness, our art only feeds the goofy side of that. I hate it. I I hate the, the art that depicts angels as if they were like some reject from a Pampers commercial that grew wings or something. It's just sad. It doesn't have anything to do with the scriptures. 
these beings that appear over and over in Scripture, and every time they show up, the first thing that they have to say is, don't panic, don't be afraid, it's going to be okay, because they're so intimidating. They, they are so powerful that people freak out every time they see them. That, that's not some little fat cherub with wings. That, that is not at all what is freaking them out. It is a powerful being. And God uses these messengers, and that's what the word, uh, the Greek word, angelos, in the New Testament, it, it means messenger. They are, they are God's messengers, but they don't just deliver verbal messages. They, they are delivery men of grace, of what's needed in our, in our time of desperation, in our time of need. And just to clear up some of the myths and or misconceptions about angels, first of all, let's get this one off the table. Let's be clear. Angels are not just our ancestors who have died and gone to heaven and worked long and hard enough that they finally got their wings. Now, It's a Wonderful Life is my all-time favorite movie, but that part is just totally bogus. Clarence getting his wings, is that doesn't have anything to do with truth and reality. Jimmy Stewart and those guys are really, you know, they touch our hearts and make us cry on Christmas, but the... The whole thing of angels getting their wings and these are people who died before us. No, not at all. Angels are a whole other created order of beings. Humans don't turn into angels. We are made in the image of God. We don't want to become angels. We want to become like Jesus, and that's what God's in the process of doing. So you're, you're not going to get angels. You're not going to get angels' wings when you go to heaven. But don't be bothered by that. Jesus' resurrected body is the prototype of what you're going to get, and that body is not bound. By the laws of physics. When Jesus needed to go into a locked room, he didn't have to ask for a key. He walked through the wall. And suddenly he's just with the disciples when they're locked and hidden away. When Jesus is ready to depart the earth, he didn't have to, to wait for somebody to come and carry him away. He just ascended upward. So you, you don't need to imagine and hope that one day you'll be good enough to earn your wings. You don't need wings. You've been made in the image of God, and you are the sons and daughters of God. So don't hope for less than what God intends for you to be. Angels, uh, let's just blow up a second idea. Angels are not some beings that are divine that we should be praying to or seeking their counsel or their guidance. They are the servants of God. And so, though we are grateful for them, and they absolutely are, those who are faithful to God are on our side they are not there for us to communicate with. You remember we talked a few weeks ago about the sin that God hates, the sin of divination, seeking guidance from the supernatural without seeking it directly from God. So we, we don't pray to angels. We don't ask for angels to talk to us and, and guide us as if we could leave God out of the equation. We, we cry out to God. And if in response God wants to use an angel to deliver a message or to guide us, we absolutely will receive that. But our attention is not, or, and devotion are not directed toward angels. We're, we're all on the same page on that. I, I know you probably already get this, but I just want to make sure that we are on the same page. Everybody good with those, those thoughts? So with that understood, oh, and, and just one other for whatever it's worth. And apparently angels don't have physical bodies. The only reason that matters to us is because a third of the angels have been cast out of heaven, and we don't refer to them as angels anymore. We refer to them as demons. And because they are spirits without bodies, those long to have bodies, and so they are always seeking to attach themselves to living beings. They'll do it to animals, but they prefer humans, and that's why they're always trying to possess a human body. 
I'm not going to go. We've taught on that at other times. I'm not going to go down that road. But that that's true of angels and demons. So angels are spirit beings. Now, several scriptures speak to this, and I'm not going to do an in-depth study here, but Hebrews 1.14 says this, All the angels are spirits who serve God and are sent to help those who will receive salvation. Who's that? That's us. Thank you. What are angels supposed to do? What is their job? Not a trick question. I promise you I'm not setting you up. They've been sent by God. They're sent to, to serve God by helping those who will receive salvation. So they protect us. They supply our needs. I'll give you a couple of classic examples of angels doing this. Uh, in critical moments in Jesus' life and ministry on the earth. You remember at the outset of Jesus' ministry when he went through the whole temptation in the wilderness? Really rough time. Forty days and nights of fasting. And he dealt not just with a demon, he dealt with Satan himself. Can you imagine how exhausted he was? Because this was really the toe-to-toe to see if Satan could get Jesus to compromise and completely thwart his mission. And, I mean, Satan knew what a big deal this was. So when, when this season was completed and Jesus is utterly drained and exhausted, it says in Matthew 4.11 that angels then came and took care of Jesus. I wish we had an extra couple of verses there, don't you? I'd love to know what they did. I don't know what that looked like. But they obviously came and, and pumped him back up. They, they did something that encouraged him and restored him that he was now ready to go back into the world and do what he was called to do. Do you remember the other critical moment in Jesus' life when the Scriptures point to angels coming to him? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he is hours away from torture and crucifixion and he understands what's before him the weight of the world is on him to the point that he is sweating drops of blood satan wants to do anything he can to kill jesus before he makes it to the cross and it says in uh, luke 22 that an angel came in that moment and strengthened jesus these are just tiny little glimpses that you get of how God uses angels to come and minister to us and to protect us and to, to just revive us. I don't know how exactly they do it. I just know they do it and we need it and they become messengers of his grace for us. Now, Psalm 91.11 says this, God orders his angels to protect you wherever you go. Isn't that cool to know wherever you are, that God says, oh, I've got somebody assigned to make sure that, that you're covered. Now, we don't need to be foolish about where we go. We don't need to be flipping, oh, I can just go anywhere I want to. Don't be stupid. Yes, but, but do know that God has sent protection for us. Now, a lot of people, I know the, the number one question that would probably be asked in any sermon where you talk about angels is, do we all have guardian angels? The scriptures are not completely clear on the answer to this. The closest it ever comes is in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus has had little children brought to him. And you remember the disciples were always annoyed by kids. You didn't want them working in children's ministry because they just didn't like kids. They, they were always trying to shoo the kids away. And Jesus said, understand, you don't get in the kingdom unless you become like one of these little children. Jesus would always want to bless the children. He, he didn't want them shooed away from him. But in the middle of talking about children, he says this really interesting line in verse 10. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, a couple of things about this that I want you to notice. When he says in heaven, as best we can, I want us to blow up the idea that we are down here on earth and God and the angels and those who have already died in the faith are somewhere far, far away in heaven a location on the far side of the universe. We probably need to to blow that idea up in our minds and recognize that and I know I'm 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 treading on dangerous ground here, but there's a, a very great likelihood, I think, that the reality of heaven is not some distant location. That that it is multiple dimensions of existence that allows that we need to think in terms of the heavenlies rather than just heaven as a location far away. That in the heavenlies, things are going on all around us. That in the spiritual dimension, angels and demons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that they are not far off out there, that they are existing in dimensions, that they can be all around us, interacting with us. We're only existing in a few dimensions. Einstein was actually smart enough and other theoretical mathematicians and physicists have been able to prove mathematically at least 28 different dimensions of reality. And we're only in touch with about four of them. They're just proving in terms of math and science what God's been living in all this time, that he's, he's living in all these other dimensions of reality that are very real, they're very present, and they have the capacity to enter into the physical reality that we know. And so when we think in terms of of Angels observing the face of the Father in heaven don't think of them as being somewhere far away with God, but that they are in the heavenlies with God, that they are around us, they are near us, but they are constantly beholding the face of the Father. And here's the wonderful thought in that. It would be a little disturbing if the idea was, well, here's your best hope about God's protection for your life, is that God... Tony, God sent an angel to take care of you. Now, don't know if you were worthy of getting a good angel. Maybe you just got a so-so angel. Maybe a, maybe kind of a lowly angel. So we hope he can keep up with you. You're going to be traveling this week. So hopefully he doesn't miss the ride and go with you to Florence. So hopefully that you got a good angel who's with you. I mean, if that's how we're thinking, you may get into big trouble. You may have a terrible accident if you've got a slacking angel. But that's not the picture that God's drawing. The, the picture that God is drawing of these powerful beings who are not trying to chase you around all the way to Florence and back this week. No, they are forever beholding what? The face of the Father. Why is that significant? Because angels are not omniscient. Angels don't know everything about the future. God does. God isn't bound by time. God exists in all of time. So if Tony's going to have difficulty, if there's danger ahead for Tony this week, God's already been there. God's already well aware of it. And so if, if there are angels assigned to Tony and to Dale this week, then the Father is the one who's able to say, hey, on Tuesday at 3 p.m., there's going to be danger for them. I need you to go ahead of them and be prepared for that and ward that up. Woo, that's a lot better than a slack angel trying to catch up with Tony this week, isn't it? Now, okay just so we're faithful to the Scriptures. Jesus says that about kids. I don't know that we would ever outgrow the need for that, but he does say it specifically about kids. I hope it applies to us as adults. I personally think that it does, but that's where the concept comes from. Whether you have a guardian angel or not, 
the angels of heaven are assigned as ministers, according to Hebrews 1, who are to, to care for the people of God. And God's goodness ensures that every day for the rest of your life that you're on the receiving end of this. And those angels are constantly working to create encouraging and helpful circumstances for us. I want you to just consider this thought for a minute. How many different times in your life have things happened to you or your family or somebody that you know of that you just came away going, how in the world could that have ever happened? I mean, what are the chances that that could have happened? And I would just contend that in many of those instances, God sent angelic presence to step in and cause things to happen. I'll give you what I think is a great example. Uh, a pastor shared the story. This is the, the, I'm not disguising a story about me and one of you. This is truly a story about an, another pastor. But a, but a colleague shared the story of a woman in his church who came to him in the church office one day, and she was very distraught. And she shared with him, she said, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm many weeks into the pregnancy, far enough along that the doctors have done some tests and have said that the baby that I'm carrying definitely is going to be a Down syndrome child. And I'm so upset about this. And I'm just, I'm really wrestling with what to do. And I'm, I'm thinking that maybe the, the wisest course of action would be to terminate the pregnancy. I'm thinking about having an abortion. And the pastor talked with her and tried to reason with her, shared some passages of scripture with her, just trying to help her recognize that, God had a plan in this and that God is the one forming this child. God knows this child. God has a plan for this child. He loves this child and does not want this child's life taken. When they finished their conversation, you know, the lady thanked him when they had talked and prayed together and she left. But she was still just very unsettled and unsure of what to do. And the pastor's feeling burdened about this. And it's just so clear that it's still weighing on her. And she's she's just not made up her mind what she's going to do. So. The next day, the pastor thought, I'm going to write her a note to just try and encourage her. So he pulled out a, a postcard from his desk, and he wrote uh, some scripture references on there for her, and just a couple of lines of encouragement speaking to her situation about this baby and, and how you know Down's syndrome is not the end of life, and, and this child can have such a special life. And he put the lady's name on there and the correct address, and he dropped it in the mail. Well... The card that was supposed to be delivered to her got put in the wrong batch of mail and was delivered to someone else in a whole other part of the city. And it just so happened that the person who received it was a woman as well. And she pulled out this card and she read what's on it and saw the address. And it wasn't like another address on her street. It's on the far side of the city. But from reading what was on the card, she realized I need to get this card to this lady. And she didn't do what most of us would do, which is write on their wrong address and stick it back in the mailbox. She got in her car and she drove and searched out and found the correct address. And she went and knocked on the lady's door. And this pregnant woman came and answered the door. And the woman said, ma'am, this card was delivered to the wrong address. This is for you, but it was delivered to me and I want to give it to you. But I want to do more than that. I want to tell you that I am the mother of a Down syndrome child. And I want to tell you that I am here to help you with your child. I want to help you through this pregnancy. And I want to help you raise this child. And I want to help you discover the joy of being the mother of a Down syndrome child. Don't try and tell me that that's coincidence. 
God knows how to send angels at the right time to go, that card doesn't get to stay in this pile. It goes to this address because I need to connect this person with this lady and that's going to supply what's needed. You can't begin to count how many times in your life the goodness of God sent angelic help so that you got exactly what you needed even when you couldn't see what was going on. I'll tell you another way that God does it. I won't camp on this, but I'll just mention it to you. God uses the family that is the church to do very much the same thing. To encourage us, to protect us, and to supply what we need when we need it the most. But we've got to be willing to tap into that. I mean, for those of you who have lived as a part of the community of faith, how many times in your life... Have you been discouraged or on the verge of making a bad decision or a terrible compromise? And a brother or sister called you or showed up in your life and their presence, their words, their influence kept you on track, kept you from making a terrible decision. Or they just showed up in a, in a time of crisis when you just didn't know how you were going to make it through another day. And they stood with you and you got through it because the grace of God was poured out to you. Through someone, God uses the church. He uses the church to supply needs. I love how he does that. And and he's so good at it. I mean, I get to be positioned to just watch it so many times. It, It happened this week. I couldn't begin to count how many times this type of thing has happened. That the phone will ring and it's somebody going, Hey, um, I feel like God's telling me I'm supposed to supply a need of somebody in the church, but I don't know who's in need. Do you know somebody who's in need? And God is real faithful to point out where there's a need and to just see how God goes, here's a need, here's somebody who could meet a need. Boom, let's take care of that. And by the way, we're all going to be in need of being on the receiving end of that and being on the giving end of that. So don't let pride get in your way when you need to receive. And don't let greed get in your way when you need to be the one to supply. God uses the church to demonstrate his goodness and to protect us and meet our needs. So God promises that his goodness will follow you all the way to your dying day. Now, does that mean that only good things are going to chase you to your dying day. Don't you wish it did? It does not. David is the one who wrote this, and he certainly knew that it does not. I mean, have you read through David's life lately? My goodness. I can't think of anybody other than Jesus himself who faced more opposition than David did. He was blessed. He was favored. I mean, I'm just telling you, if God had a refrigerator, I guarantee you David's face was plastered on there. God is crazy about that joker. He loved David. But David just, the first half of his life, Saul was trying to kill him all the time. I mean, we don't have time to go into all the bad things that happened to David. And yet, God worked a way for David to prosper and be blessed in ways that are hard for us to fathom. Romans 8.28 pretty much sums up what our perspective needs to be on this issue. It says, we know All that happens to us is working for our good if we love God and are fitting into his plans. That is a big if. We want to have our plans and fit God into them, don't we? And God is the one who has a plan and we need to fit ourselves into his plan and what he's doing. If we love him and we're trying to cooperate with his plan, then what God is always doing is working for our good 
And at times when in spite of the grace and goodness of God, when bad things come our way, God is the master of taking bad stuff and working good out of it. Everybody can bring good out of favorable circumstances, can't we? I mean, when there's plenty of money in the bank and everybody's healthy and everybody's happy, I mean, who can't bring good out of that? You don't have to be God to bring good out of that. God is the master of taking the worst days and saying, I'm still going to work good stuff out of that. And we look back later on and go, I would have never dreamed good could come out of that. I was thinking this week about eight years ago, a lot of difficult stuff had gone on in my life, but it just felt like, the final layer that just felt like it would crush me at the time was being asked to leave a church that I had founded and invested about 12 years in. And on the day that I was asked to resign, that was such a black day in my memory. And it's amazing how many times Satan wants to dredge that up in ways to bring you down. I, I said and did all the right stuff on that day. I mean, as best I know how, I, I, you know, I think I walked through that with integrity and, and with grace and even, you know, Emotion somewhat under control and, and could feel good about that part. You know, as good as you can feel about feeling like the rug's pulled out from under you. But, but a walk through that part. But the part that nobody got to see was as soon as I left that meeting, I went to the office, closed the door, and cried like a baby. I mean, just because it just felt like the one thing that I had left was suddenly ripped away. And it just felt like there's you know, nothing good left. I'm not mad at God. I'm not abandoning the faith. But just heartbroken. And I'm just acknowledging to you, because you've been through moments like that in your life, that when you're in those moments, you don't see any good. You don't go, I bet this is going to work out so well, though. I bet when I get through crying and blowing snot out my nose, I bet it's just going to be happy days and blue skies. No. When that's where you are, it just feels like there's nothing but just clouds and thick darkness surrounding you, that that it's never going to be any better. But the truth of the matter is, in those moments... God is busy orchestrating those painful times in such a way he's going to work so much good out of that. I mean, I could spend the rest of our time telling you all of the good that has come as a result of that. How God reconnected me with the things that I am so wired to do that I find so fulfilling that that I've got you as my church family that I enjoy so much that now I'm getting to do the things that made me ever get excited about being a pastor in the first place that I have the luxury of time now to invest in people to do reproductive ministry where through discipleship and church planning we have the chance to reproduce and invest in people and I am so supercharged about what I get to do every week thank you that you pay me to do what I love and I couldn't be in a happier better place I mean I could just go on and on but I had to go through that and again I'm not trying to paint that as a as a bad place at all because I love that God had me there but He snatched me out of an environment where I was in so many hours of meetings every week and where so much of my life was programmed and already just, I felt like I didn't have any control over so much of my life because it was already so super committed. And now to have the freedom to just go with what God has for every week. I love where God has me because God was busy planning good in the middle of my darkest days. And he's done the same for you. By the way, you get to testify about that tonight. We're going to gather for a feast, but it's not just going to be a feast for our bellies. It's going to be a feast for our souls because we're going to have time to just testify. So I want you to be thinking today because some of you, you need to stand and testify. A big part of what the people of God are supposed to do is declare the works of God. And you're going to have a chance tonight to tell what God's done in your life. The second thing 
And, and I'm going to move through these last two quicker. The second thing that, that gives us confidence for the future is God's grace is working in me. God's goodness is working around me to protect me, but his grace is working in me at the same time. <clears throat> David says, surely mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Mercy is grace in action. God says in, in Isaiah 60:10, I will have mercy on you through my grace. Now, what is the difference between God's goodness and his mercy following me? Well, God's goodness is, is God giving me all of these good things that I don't deserve. His protection, his favor, his blessing. That's God showering his goodness on me. His mercy is the other side. It is God not giving me what I do deserve. How many of you know that if we got what we deserve today, none of us get another breath? I mean, if God's fair, hell is the, is the solution to every situation here, right? Some of us don't like that, and I know we don't get fired up about that. But it's just reality. We, we need to get in touch with that fact. We deserve hell. We deserve a hellish experience in life, and we deserve hell for eternity. That, that's the real deal. But God, in His mercy doesn't give us what we deserve. When we trust His Son, Jesus, we get a completely different outcome. So mercy is God withholding what we truly do deserve. So because of His goodness and His mercy, we can expect provision and pardon. I want to share a passage of Scripture and and probably more than anything else I could share today. This is the passage that I want you to hang on to. And I know, don't get your feelings hurt when I say this. I, you know I'm always just poking fun a little bit when I say this. But a lot of times, we still can be so white and uptight in here. We, we just, we're, we're still just a little too white in this church. So I'm giving you freedom to answer me back. So when, when you hear something and it resonates with your soul, say something. Say yes. Say amen. Say go Jesus. Say something back. So as I read this passage... If it connects with your heart, don't be white and uptight. Just get loose. Let the Holy Ghost speak to your heart. You with me? Thank you. There you go. That's not uptight. The 103rd Psalm from the heart of David. I will bless the Lord and not forget the glorious things He does for me. He forgives all my sins. All of them. Not just the little ones. Not even the ones I repeat. He heals me. He ransoms me from hell. He surrounds me with loving kindness. He fills my life with good things. His mercy, he is merciful and tender toward those who don't deserve it. I thought he did it for good people. He does that for those who don't deserve it. He is slow to get angry and full of kindness and love. He never bears a grudge. He has not punished us as we deserve for all our sins. For his mercy is as great as the height of the heavens. He is like a father to us, tender and sympathetic to those who reverence him. Is there any better news? He doesn't bear a grudge. I know the Holy Spirit said somebody needed that today. Some of us have been going through life, and every time we bumped into something bad, something really painful, we've just gone, I knew God would get me for it one day. I knew God had been waiting for his chance to pay me back. 
he would have to be a liar for that to be the truth. Because God does not bear a grudge against his kids. I don't care what you've done. The mercy of God that follows you all the days of your life assures that God is never out to get you. His mercy never runs out. He is full of love and tenderness and kindness and he relates to us as his children and and that mercy is as great as the height of the heavens if you get out a measuring stick and you have to measure how high the heavens are at what point are you going to hit the ceiling there is no ceiling you just keep on reaching across the universe that is how great his love and mercy are toward us we can stop being afraid that god is mad at us And come to realize God is mad about us. He is crazy about you. He is madly in love with you. You may have been looking for love from a man or a woman that would satisfy what is needed in you. I want to tell you, every love you've ever had from a man or a woman pales in comparison to the love that God has for you. Nobody on earth, not your mama, not your daddy, has ever loved you the way that God loves you. And it's not because he's covering up and and just trying to see the best in you. He sees you for who you are and he is crazy about you. He is a father. That's why the writer of Hebrews could say in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then feel very sure we can come before God's throne where there is grace. And there we can receive mercy and grace to help when we need it. Let's just get real. The place where we struggle with this the most is with habitual sins. It's that stuff that we've struggled with over and over and over that we just think, God has just got to be sick to death of this. I can't imagine he's going to forgive me again. And everybody's got something that you struggle with. Maybe it's your temper, maybe it's your foul mouth, maybe it's greed, maybe it's selfishness, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's lust. Whatever it is, we're all struggling with something. And it's easy enough usually to feel like we've been forgiven of those things that just pop up occasionally here or there and it's just kind of the random thing. But your, your go-to, that thing that feels like it is such a fundamental part of what is broken in you, it's hard to feel like God would have any more grace for that, isn't it? And His mercy that follows you every day of your life assures you don't have to worry whether there's forgiveness for you today because there's never been a moment in your life that God's grace and mercy were not surrounding you. God never, 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 never gets tired of you coming and asking for forgiveness. And it always gives him great joy to supply what you need. Some of us, that needs to drip from here down to here to know that God is not fed up with you. The, the passage that we're talking about here, back to the 23rd Psalm, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of, of my life. I want you to have a picture in your mind when you read that. You know, we talked about earlier in the psalm about God being a shepherd and how he leads us. How, you know, in American culture, we're not accustomed to shepherds. I mean, when's the last time you bumped into shepherds and and sheep when you were driving to church or something? We we just don't have shepherds. We have cowboys. And and cowboys drive cattle. They push cattle. And that is not how God relates to us. 
God is a shepherd and shepherds lead sheep. Sheep follow the shepherd. But here's an interesting thing to note. Sheep are dumb and they don't always follow the shepherd. And sheep will stray. And so shepherds employ sheep dogs. They'll have a couple of dogs, not to, not to harm the sheep, but to just stay behind them as kind of a rear guard and to make sure that any that get distracted that are lagging, that aren't following the shepherd, that they get moved along. Do you know the names of your two sheepdogs to make sure that you keep following the shepherd? Goodness and mercy. They follow me all the days of my life. The goodness of God. The goodness of God always protecting me, always shielding me. The mercy of God making sure that I don't get what I deserve, that I get the good that I don't deserve. Goodness and mercy are the sheepdogs that are always following me, making sure that I'm nudged along, that if I get distracted and I forget how good God is, and that God is worthy of being followed, that they just keep nudging me in the right direction. That's what's following you all of your life. Now, we may say to that, I don't feel God's goodness in my life today. I mean, somebody can in the room, somebody watching and listening online can sincerely say, I don't feel his goodness. I don't feel God's mercy in my life. I don't feel grace. I don't feel forgiveness. And to that, I would say, it doesn't matter. Because it, it has nothing to do with your feelings. There, there are a few things in life more unreliable than our feelings. They change like the weather. You can't build your life on your feelings. You don't have to feel it for it to be real. We build our lives on the truth and on the facts. And here's a fact. God's goodness always surrounds you. God's mercy always follows you. Hold on to the truth. The third and final thing from this passage. He says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That God's glory is waiting for me and it's waiting for you. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about home. This passage, as I said, is not winding down in this psalm. It's building up. It begins with the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. Great. God's going to take care of what I need today. But it's just building. He anoints my head with oil. He is protecting me. My cup runs over. Goodness and mercy are following me every day of my life. And and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's going from good to better to it's going to be great. We live with a fear of death. At some level, every one of us has some fear of death because we hadn't been there before. And that scares us. It's natural that we have a little concern about that. But what David is reminding us of is we don't have to be afraid of this thing because death is going to bring us to a different place where... No matter how blessed your life has been, and some of us can testify we have been blessed in this life. No matter how good it has been, David is saying it's going to be so much better on the other side. Because when we get to experience God's glory and this place called heaven where there is no longer any suffering, there's no more failure, there's no more struggle with sin, we're not going to... to be bound up with all of the hurt and the disappointment that have held us back. We're going to be free from those things. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more grief. And you know what the very, very best part of heaven is going to be? God in all of His fullness, God in all of His glory will be fully present there with us. And I cannot adequately express what that's going to be like because I can't even take it in. 
when Isaiah caught a glimpse of it, he said, the train of his robe, just the train of his robe. I, I, did a, I performed a wedding ceremony last night. His brides always are. The bride is beautiful. She had a big train behind her. But I want to tell you, that was not the point of attention. That's just a tiny little piece of the bigger picture of the, the beauty of a bride. He said, just the train of his robe completely filled the temple. And I'm so overwhelmed at his presence, just, just sort of seeing the back end of this, that I'm screaming, woe is me, I am undone in the presence of the greatness of God. This God whose glory is so great that for man in our current condition to interact with Him at all, it says clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Why? Because the glory of God is so great. Can you just begin to grasp a little of the glory of God? The Scripture says in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. When Jackie and I were on our anniversary trip about a month ago, we are on a cruise and you just, it seems like, you have to get almost out at sea or someplace to ever see the night sky well anymore. One of the nights we're standing out on the deck and it's just so much darker at sea than you ever see the sky from land. And, and it's like there are just countless stars that come alive. You see the Milky Way so clearly. And just in that moment to recognize just the vastness of God. And I think everything that we're seeing except for one of those particular little pinbricks, everything else is in our galaxy and that's one of just millions and millions of galaxies. And all of that is just a dim reflection of the greatness and the glory of God. Now, the night sky does it for me. The ocean does it for me. The, the, the power and the vastness of it, whatever it is, if it's the mountains for you that, that, that grab your heart and your attention, maybe whatever it is in nature, I want to remind you it's a glimpse of the glory of God, but it's a dim reflection of the glory of God. We will experience God in all of His glory when we go home. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has ever seen, no one has ever heard, no one has ever imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. For us to try and grasp not just the place, but to be in the presence of God. It's so beyond what we can get our minds around. It would be much like if you had to try and explain to an ant... The internet and how it works. You can't explain the internet to me. I don't understand. Much less to an ant. That, that's like us trying to get our minds around the greatness of God and of what awaits us in heaven. But I want to share with you one final thought on that that blows my mind. Romans nine twenty three and 24 says this. God waited with patience so that he could make known the riches of his glory to the people that he has chosen to receive his mercy, God has already prepared them, that is us, to share his glory. And we are those people. Did you get that? We don't just get to go see it, to go and admire it and worship it. I mean, I can't get my head all the way around what that's going to be like. I don't think I get real close. But he says he chose us, his children, to share in his glory. Okay, I get how weak this comparison is. I just couldn't come up with better, so work with me. It is as if on the giant screen of the universe, this big movie screen, it, it declares the, the name of the greatest epic film ever, and it is called 
God's glory starring the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And co-starring you. What? I mean, I get it. God is great. God is so radiant, so powerful, so wise, so good. His glory is unspeakable. And we're going to we're going to get to see it and not be consumed by it. That's amazing. But he says, I don't just want you to admire it. I'm going to share it with you. You're not just my sheep. You're my sons. You're my daughters. And I'm going to elevate you not to become gods, but to become the sons and daughters of God who no longer struggle with sin and weakness pain and failure, but who now bear the image and the glory of God. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Father, we give you thanks. You are good, and there is none like you. We worship you. In this week of Thanksgiving, you don't have to do anything else for us, for us to spend the rest of our days saying thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your goodness that surrounds us. Thank you for your mercy that protects us and keeps us from experiencing what we deserve. And thank you for the promise of heaven and sharing in your glory. God, help us to live worthy of you. Help us to press in and know you. Throughout this whole series, we have celebrated God's goodness and his provision for us. But it needs to be acknowledged that it is only reserved for those who belong to the family of God. And we have a choice to make in that. All of the good news that we've talked about is useless Unless you choose to let God be your shepherd. Jesus to be your savior. You have to believe the simple message of Jesus' death on your behalf on the cross and his resurrection. You have to be willing to acknowledge your helplessness and accept his forgiveness. It's there for the asking, but you've got to ask. If today you realize, I haven't ever stepped across that line into faith, into God's forgiveness and the family of God. You don't have to prep for it or study for it. Why don't you today, in a simple act of faith, just pray with me from your heart. God will hear you. Would you just say, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you love me. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. So I'm asking you now to forgive my sins. And to accept my life and to change me, to make me into the person that you want me to be. I want God as my shepherd. God is my father. And I receive that by faith. Father, I thank you for hearing and answering our prayers that are prayed in simple faith. And I thank you for your love and faithfulness. We pray these with grateful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.